I'm going to get started with a story, actually, uh, a story about myself, which will be made up, as you'll hope, find out very soon, but a story about myself working at Chick-fil-A in the IT department and uh, having um, opportunity to have a budget there at the Chick-fil-A department that we work with, and uh, as it turns out in this story, I actually used some of this budget to get some really cool devices for myself and uh, to buy some games and other things that I wanted for personal use. In fact, it was Christmas time, so I found it quite convenient to have that extra budget for family and friends and gifts, and it was just very nice to have that budget available to me. Well, when my supervisor found out about it, he didn't feel the same way, as you might expect, and he told me, well, you've, you need to collect your belongings because you can no longer work here. And I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I've got a family to provide for. I'm really, all I know how to do is program. I don't have very many other skills in life. No one's going to hire me after they hear this. What am I going to do? But then it hit me. I had a brilliant idea. Instead of collecting my belongings, I also have access to our POS software, our point of sale software at Chick-fil-A. So I went on that and I made the price of every item half off. And I pushed those changes out to all the stores across America. And then I get on, second thing I did was I got on Facebook and Twitter and explained that by my generosity, everyone until further notice could eat at Chick-fil-A for half off. Now my thought was that I'm falling on hard times at Chick-fil-A, I might as well at least get some good goodwill among those outside of Chick-fil-A. And once they hear that it was at my goodwill and benevolence that this was done, they'll receive me and appreciate me a lot more once I have to go out into the real world and do something else. So that's a story to introduce stewardship, obviously by negative example, you would think. And yet, the very unique thing, the very interesting thing about that story is that Jesus tells just about the exact same story in one of the Gospels. And it's in Luke 16, so let's turn there. And as you're turning, the interesting thing is Jesus actually commends the person who acted that way and tells his disciples to learn from him. So that's really surprising, and we're going to look at that story and talk about why. Luke 16, 1 through 9. I've got it on the screen, or you can also look at your, your Bibles in front of you. Now, Jesus was saying to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, or a manager. And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. You can begin to see the connection to my story. The rich man is Chick-fil-A in this story, and I'm the manager. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. 
And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. This is the shocking part. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. And then Jesus' commentary begins. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, I, Jesus, say to you, my disciples, make friends for yourself by means of the mammon of unrighteousness that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So it's a fascinating story. I'm going to tell that same story uh, or a similar story tomorrow at this devotion at Chick-fil-A. And I don't think our CIO is going to appreciate it. And you can imagine that I wouldn't be commended in a situation like that. I'd be shown the exit door a lot faster. I wouldn't even be allowed to get my belongings. So why? Why does Jesus, why does this master in the story commend this steward? And why does Jesus tell his disciples to basically go and do likewise? It's very perplexing. And as you read commentaries and people on the internet writing about this parable, it's every time you read it, it's like when you read, when you hear a sermon on the minor prophets, the first thing any preacher ever says is, well, they're not minor because they're minor in importance. They're just called that because they're less in length. Well, anytime you read a commentary or a description or a sermon on this, the first thing people always say is, this is the hardest parable to interpret. And you see that. I'll just throw a few of those up there. This interpretation of this parable is notoriously difficult. This passage is the subject of much debate and is regarded as one of the most problematic parables to interpret. The parable is generally considered to be one of the most puzzling parables of Jesus and the best from the, from the web, from our fa- favorite source, Wikipedia. What the heck is this supposed to mean anyway? So folks have gone to great lengths to try to understand why would this there's got to be something missing for this to be this got to be commended. So what's missing? And folks have gone to great lengths to give explanations. Here's a few possible explanations. And this first one, the steward or the manager had been unfair with the debtors because he had basically tacked on profits for himself in addition to the loan. He says, from the story, there's no indication that the master instigated or condoned this overcharging. So when he went and settled with the debtors, he basically was taking off his portion. And that earned the gratitude of those debtors as well as the admiration of the masters. Now, the problem I have with this explanation is he himself or she, I don't know who it is, says, you know, from the story, there's no indication that the master condoned it. But my problem with this explanation is there's no, from the story, there's no indication of any of this, right? This is completely added to the story. All of that. That's possible, but those details were certainly left out if they were important to the story. A second possible explanation. Is it possible that instead of being dishonest in the collection of the master's debts, that he is being zealous to see the debts remitted even at the cost of some forgiveness? Is it possible that this steward's fault had been overzealous, his overzealous approach to the letter of the debt, and in doing so, he was failing to do his job, for in seeking to only bring in the full amount, he was failing to bring in much of anything? 
Is it just possible that in his zeal for perfection, he had lost sight of the merciful nature of his master? So he hadn't learned what credit card companies in our day have learned, that it's better sometimes to cut your losses and take a smaller percentage than to continue to work for, this, for the debt. The problem I have with this uh, explanation is that's just not how he's described there. He's not zealous for perfection. That's not how. That's not this gentleman's fault, is that he's trying to really go out there and get his master's debts paid off and boy he's just unwilling to have show any grace at all that also seems to be added to the story but you see how folks are just trying to figure out how can this parable make sense a third explanation how does this story work well the master in this case was not totally innocent it was unlawful to lend money at interest but to get around this you could lend in kind with commodities such as oil and wheat It seems that what the steward deducted from the bill was the interest, leaving only the principal to be paid. In this way, the debtors would be happy and the master couldn't find fault with the steward without revealing his shady business practices. The master could only admire the clever steward. So in this explanation, there's actually fault with the master. He's the one trying to get interest when he's not supposed to. And so he can't speak up when his manager goes and collects the proper amount. The problem with this is Jesus tells folks to do likewise this guy the who do you think the master represents in this parable it represents god right so any explanation that pins the fault on the master is going to be hard to swallow let's keep going last one number four the parable of the unjust steward as this one is known is one of the most baffling stories in the bible what makes it particularly irksome is that the manager jesus praises is dishonest a scoundrel does jesus want us to be deceitful cheating others to protect our own skins further our own interests the interests of god's kingdom i don't think so why then does jesus praise this dishonest manager truth be told we're not sure so i think that's the best one yet and that's how that's how we feel when we come to it right so there are really four keys, I think, that I want to walk us through to, to best understand what this parable means and what Jesus is teaching. So we're going to walk through four keys, and then that's going to hopefully unlock for us what Jesus is teaching in this parable. The first key is allow there to be a surprise, right? That's really what gets at us is why there's got to be something else going on that this rich man would praise the unjust steward there's got to be something else but i'm saying the first key to it is allow there to be that element of surprise there don't try to explain it away the fact is and i gave it away there was an element of surprise and a response in the story just before this jesus has just told a story and kind of the key turning point in that story was a very surprising response from someone who had been wronged the story before it was the prodigal son And he had been wrong. The father had been cheated. Basically, the father had been told, I wish you were dead. I want the inheritance now. Let me have my money. And when he comes back and was going to beg for forgiveness, as you know, there's a very surprising response from the father. One who wouldn't have expected as he comes and runs and embraces and celebrates with his son. And that tells us something about the father that's surprising to us that we might not have expected his gracious nature. This parable is also going to tell us something about the master, about the father. And we should allow there to be an element of surprise there, something we might not have expected. In fact, there are a lot of connections between those two stories. 
The story of the prodigal son and what we could call the prodigal steward. Prodigal just means wasteful spending. Both of them use this same word, squandering, a very rare word. It's not used a lot. In fact, it's used mostly when Jesus is talking about scattering seed. It basically just means just, you know, just free and free, not worried about your money, just letting it go, squandering it, wasting it. Whereas most people, you need to be very protective and careful with money, just free, squandering it. Both stories talk and introduce a story with a character of someone who has squandered money. Use that verb. Both squanderers get into a pickle, right? One guy runs out and is wanting to eat the food of the pigs because he's basically lost all means and all friends and all family. This guy's in a pickle because he's about to lose his job. Both of them have soliloquies, right? In both stories, you have the guy say, Eureka, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father or I'm going to go find these debtors and reduce their debts. They have that same element to the story. And then, as we've mentioned, and this is the first key, both have this surprising response that we just need to live with and, and try to deal with and not try to explain away why there must be some reason. Finally, both stories end with someone protesting. The older brother in the one case who refuses to go into the party. And as we'll see in our story, the Jesus' listeners. We'll get to that in just a second. But that's the first key to understanding this parable. And I would just say, our issue with why we say there's got to be something else. There's got to be some other part of the story. There's no way this rich man could respond this way is because we all come at this either one with having a master ourselves i'm thinking of chick-fil-a tomorrow right i mean our cio couldn't praise me for doing what i described because his head is going to roll right by whoever he reports to okay well jesus the father maybe this rich man maybe he he's free in that regard he doesn't have anyone to report to second we have limited resources but what if you had unlimited resources? Like this man in this story, just based on the debts that were remitted to him and how much was owed, this is a rich dude. Jesus is really emphasizing how much wealth he has. And if you think about the father in this story, or Jesus, you could overlook some squandering of your resources if you had unlimited resources. So we, we might think, are you kidding me? Christian Matthew, don't break those pencils. I, you know how much pencils cost, you know. I might be really upset over some trifle because I've got to really watch my budget. But if you had unlimited budget, you might be able to look past that and see something else in a situation and not get caught up on the on the wastefulness. Anyways, all that to say, the first key, I think, is just to allow that surprise, that element of surprise, and don't try to explain it away with other in- inventive ideas. Second is to understand the context that this story is told in. This, this parable is one of five. It doesn't sit by itself. It's number four of five parables that all go together. Now, Jesus, at the end of chapter 14, and I'll have more time here than I have tomorrow, so I'm actually going to read some of these. Jesus requires his followers to love him more than family, more than their own lives, and more than all their possessions. So Jesus, in chapter 14, verse 25, has great multitudes coming to him, large crowds. And as you know, Jesus often acted differently than we would when we have large crowds. He often said things to weed out the crowds to see who his true followers were. And now he has these large follower, the following, this large crowd around him. And he says, I just want you to know, and he'd say things in ways that really, you know, you think about 
after he had fed the multitude in John 6 and they come and follow him and he starts talking about eating his blood and eating his body and drinking his blood and, and, and the crowds just are like, we don't want to have anything to do with this. He even says things in a way that just, he says in Luke 14, 26, you know what, if you want to be my follower, you need to hate your father and your mother you need to hate your wife and your children and sisters. You have to hate your own life. And you have to give up all your possessions. Now, Jesus didn't mean exactly what he said there. Any more than he meant exactly what he said when he said, eat my body and drink my blood. What he meant, and you can tell because in Matthew 10, in the, in the corresponding passage, it's recorded as, you have to love me more than father or mother or brother, or sister. The point Jesus is making is, he has to be absolute. You have to love him more than yourself, your own life. You have to love him more than your family. It's not that you, I mean, you can't throw away all those other things that say love, honor your father and mother, and love your children, right? I mean, all those things Jesus is not contradicting. He's just making a point in a very forceful way. But the point he's making is I have to be loved more than all those other things, more than family, more than your life, more than your possessions. Now, that's what he wanted to talk about. The Pharisees listened, okay, they heard these things, and they wanted to talk about something else. What they wanted to talk about was, hey, why are you letting these sinners come near to you? What's the deal with that? So they're not listening to what Jesus is saying and making a decision about how they should respond. They're saying, hey, what are, why are these people, why are you receiving them? They're grumbling. So that's the context that Jesus is going to launch into five parables with. The first three are all in response to the Pharisees here, and they're all told to the Pharisees. They're all about something being lost. The first is, a, And they're also all about money in a sense. And I'll, I'll put that in quotes because the first one is about sheep. But you understand that sheep is money in those days. Sheep are money in those days, even today. Um, so the first one is about a lost sheep. So it's about a sinner who repents and the joy over that, over that repentant sinner when he repents. The coin, also about money, is the same thing. This woman is like me, you know, worried about pencils. She's, she's got this one coin, and she really, when she finds it, she rejoices. And similarly, when there's one sinner who repents, there's joy. Again, you see how Jesus is responding uh, to the Pharisees while still continuing to talk about possessions, which he wanted to talk about. The last story is the prodigal son, or we call it the lost son, which we just talked about. It's got the same message at the very end. We have to rejoice over this son who was dead and is now back. It's about joy. But what's interesting, and this is where Jesus shifts, because he's going to tell a different parable to a different audience. And this parable is longer than the first two and has a little bit of a different focus. In addition to joy, think about what Jesus has just been saying. He's going to get back on the track of what he wants to talk about, which is loving him more than these other things. And he says, think about this prodigal son who, if you want to be my follower, you have to love me more than family, your own life, and all your possessions. Now think about this prodigal son sitting in the pigsty with no possessions, no family, and very little life remaining. How hard will it be for him to look past those things and see Jesus? Bad example. 
How hard will it be for him to look past those things and, 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 and love his father more than anything else? When he has nothing, he's lost it all. And Jesus' point seems to be, in addition to the joy over him coming home, that he's actually in an easier place, maybe less hindrances, to fulfill, to obey Jesus' commands. Because he has so much less. He squandered it all away through foolish living. So sinners are not only appreciated when they come home, but honestly, they may have it easier than folks that have a hard time because they have lots of possessions or feel like they have a life that they can't forsake for Jesus. Now, Jesus has told all those three parables to the Pharisees, and he's going to turn and tell, and that's the context. Again, Jesus wants to be talking about possessions and loving him more than your possessions. And he's going to get back to that. He's going to turn to his disciples, verse 1 says in chapter 16. He's going to turn to his disciples, and now this parable is going to be for them. But again, the context around it is about sinners and money. So, first two keys. One, allow there to be a surprise. Two, understand the context of this parable. Three, the third key is to figure out who are the sinners in this story? Who are the sinners in the parable that we're trying to understand? Right? you got the unjust steward. He's clearly a sinner. He's clearly an unfaithful, unrighteous man. But what I want you to do is look down to Jesus' summary of the parable, starting in verse 10. And let's see what we can learn about who are the sinners in the story. Who are the disciples supposed to identify with? I said fourth parables to the disciples. Now, verses 10 to 13. Jesus gives the principle, he who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Now, that's a principle of stewardship that we all can sign off on. We understand that and we believe it. And as we hear that, we strive to be on the faithful side, and rightly so. Because there are many passages that talk about we should be faithful stewards of the, of the gifts God's given to us. But that's not the point of this parable. And if you take that concept as the key driving point to this parable, you're going you're gonna to miss the point. Because look what he says next. He says, given that principle, now here's my conclusion. You see, therefore, based on that principle, if you then have not been faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true riches to you? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So Jesus is saying, based on this principle, now you need to understand... Unfaithfulness means you're not getting your own riches and you're not getting true riches. So he's expounding on the unfaithful side of that principle. He says later, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, mammon. And so Jesus there lays down that principle to show why he's emphasizing the unfaithful side of things. Because who is there who has not loved money over God? Who is there who has been faithful in that regard? In the story, you've got this guy who's squandering possessions and being, okay, I get it. It's hard to, it's hard to maybe for some of us to identify with him because we've tried to stay clean laced and, you know, buttoned up. But now when Jesus throws this gauntlet down and says, it's about love. That's what unfaithfulness means for me when I talk about money and possessions. It's about who do you love. And we all find ourselves on the unfaithful side of this principle. 
Now again, I'm not saying that principle isn't true and I'm not saying you should never say we should be faithful because if you're faithful and little, you'll be granted. I, I grant that and that's taught in other places. My point is to say that in understanding this parable, we need to see that Jesus is asking his disciples to identify with the unjust steward. As folks who have been unfaithful by not loving God more than their possessions faithfully. Because all of us have failed in that. The fourth key is the one that really gets people riled up. And I, I'd say it this way. I don't I'd say it for dramatic effect. Not because I think it's a good principle to take into all. But Jesus is basically saying, so act like these good sinners. That's the point of this parable. And that's what makes it so confusing because we don't want to believe that's what it's about. But that's what he's saying. He says it in verse 8. He says, the sons of this age, who are they? Those are the unbelieving folks that, that get by. Oh, you mean I'm going to lose my job? Well, I'll do whatever it takes to get, you know. The folks that are like that are actually more wise or shrewd. He's not praising this guy's faithfulness. What he did was wrong. But they're at least more shrewd. In, in relation to their own kind, than sons of light, than his followers. So what does he mean, act like sinners? Well, if Jesus' disciples fully embrace the fact that they are on the unfaithful side of that paradigm, they need to understand that just like the steward, they're going to lose their possessions. And we all know that. At death, most likely, maybe before, but for all of us at death, we're going to be stripped of our possessions. We're not going to be able to carry them with us much Less are we going to be had added to us, as it were, because of our faithfulness for those possessions. We're going to lose what we have. And we need to understand that as believers, as Jesus' followers. We're going to lose that. What we have is not ours, and we're not going to get to keep it. Now, what would a sinner do, what would a son of this age do, if he was faced with a situation like that? Well, that's what this parable tells us, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to be foolish. I'm going to be shrewd and I've got a window of opportunity here. I'm going to use these resources to make friends for myself. That's what Jesus wants us to learn here. So what is, that's the last key is Jesus is telling us to act like this sinner. Not in every way. He's not happy that we've been unfaithful. He doesn't want us to, uh, be unrighteous. As this guy was, he calls him, even when he's given the example, he says, see what the unrighteous steward did. He doesn't want us to be unrighteous. He wants us to see the wisdom in what this guy did when presented with the circumstance that we're in. And so what does the parable mean? Jesus instructs his followers to think this way. First, I've been unfaithful. To own it. To not be, remember the context. Why are these sinners listening to you? Why are you letting them? And so Jesus is turning that. He's going, I'm going to still talk about money, but let me do it in this way. Understand, first of all, that you're in that boat. You're one of the sinners. And that's the, the perspective with which you need to come to this. Second, because of that, I'm going to lose my possessions. Just because I have them now, look, nobody's taking this phone from me. I have this nice, shiny phone it's gonna, it looks like it's permanent, it looks like it's mine, but it's not going to be mine. And I have to think that way. I have to remember that this is not going to be mine. I can't keep this. It's not mine now. Because we're here at Brack, I won't say this at Chick-fil-A tomorrow, but I say this all the time to my kids when they're arguing over things. That's my shirt. I say, no, that's my shirt. You would never fit into that. It doesn't matter. That's my shirt and everything in this house is mine. If you want to borrow it, that's fine. But it's mine. Right? Sorry. 
That may not be the best parenting advice in general, but they can attest that I say that a lot, right? Well, that, that same, and I'll say to them, and you know, in reality, I don't own anything, right? Okay, so it's true. We have to think that way. We own nothing, ultimately, like that. God owns the world. We're going to lose it because we've been unfaithful with it. And again, the grace of God is magnified here because despite our unfaithfulness, I'm not saying that we're not going to receive an inheritance. And he, he says, as unfaithful stewards, use these things to make friends so that you'll be received into eternal dwellings. So there's eternal dwellings coming. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying Jesus is trying to have us think this way about our possessions. So I'm going to lose my possessions and I should use them before I lose them. That's the point. That's what Jesus wants. In the same way that this son of this age, this you know dastardly steward is going to act this way. You should act that way. You should use your possessions before you lose them. In particular, now Jesus doesn't give a lot of details. This is not a detailed parable. This is, and that's why I said earlier it's not practical per se. It's really about a way of thinking. But I tried to add at least, you know, what is, what are some, some details? Jesus doesn't give them, but he does say these are to be used particularly for sons of light, those that would receive you into eternal dwellings. It's not saying that we don't give to unbelievers or unbelieving organizations, but Jesus really says his focus is on giving, using your, your fleeting resources to give to sons of light. And if you go back even further in the context, before he started talking about possessions, and he talked about, remember that story, when you have a party, don't invite all your friends and people who are going to invite you back to their nice houses. You know, invite people who can't pay you back, because that's how you'll get paid back. So, again, this is not, Jesus isn't giving particulars here. He's giving a way of thinking, but that may add some particulars to it. Again, Jesus isn't giving detailed instructions. He's prescribing a way of thinking about our possessions. Okay, so that's that's us. That's hopefully us and the way we need to to look at this parable and think about our possessions in the coming year. Now, I only tell the rest of the story because Jesus does. And there may be some of us that need to hear this second part too. But Jesus tells a fifth parable because he's not done. A fifth parable in the sequence. And that's because the Pharisees who kind of started this whole deal heard him and said, this is enough. We've heard all these things and they're scoffing him. And you can kind of probably fill in the blanks is what they're saying, but they got that Jesus was asking them to identify with the sinners because look at Jesus' rebuke of them. He says, I know, Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves, which basically the word justify just means declare yourself right. So you think you're right. You refuse to identify with sinners. So I'm going to tell one more parable in response to that, Jesus said. And he starts it the exact same way. The first, the fourth parable says there was a certain rich man who had a steward. Now the last parable, Jesus starts it the exact same way. There was a certain rich man. What's fascinating here is the Pharisees in this story are represented by the rich man in this story. No longer are they the steward because in their minds they are the rich man. Not the steward. They will not identify with the unfaithful steward. They will identify with the rich man. But there was a certain rich man, and you know the story, who habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Now this poor man, Lazarus, was carried to Abraham's bosom, but the rich man went to Hades in torment after death. It's a bad pun, but... He received a cool reception as opposed to 
friends greeting him as Jesus instructed his followers. Sorry, it was a bad pun. If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises to the dead. The reason I, and I'm skipping because we, we don't have time and I certainly won't have time tomorrow. But the point is, these folks are, are really stuck in this way of thinking, to be honest. And that's what this parable illustrates. And it's a warning that Jesus gives. After instructing his followers to think this way, he warns those who refuse to think this way. Here's the warning. Here's the danger. First, you might think, you might not be willing to identify with the steward. You might think, I'm not unfaithful. Jesus tells this story again to those who were justifying themselves. And that goes, leads you to think, in fact, not only am I not unfaithful, the possessions I have are mine. And again, Jesus illustrates that by letting them play the part of the rich man in the next parable. He's no longer a steward. And you might begin to think that your possessions won't fail you. You might fall into that trap and not realize that your possessions are not going to last. This man was acting as if his possessions were going to be there forever. He was really living it up. You might think that those possessions are not meant to help others. They're meant for me to enjoy. Where you, ha- I mean, again, Jesus didn't give details. And sometimes we really like details. He's just giving us a way to think. But here in this story, he says, well, let me just give you a really obvious example. Here you have the utmost luxury and here you have a man who just longs for a bread come right next to you. Now there may be a, there's a lot of gray area in between because there's a lot of other stewardship principles like saving and, and there is. God gives us things to enjoy. So again, there's all these gray things you have to use wisdom and figure out. But here's a kind of black and white, right? This is not good. This man is desperately needing something. You have luxury and this man has gone down this path, this rich man has gone this, down this path and, path and thinking these things, and now he, he no longer even is willing to do this very obvious thing that his money would, would be great for. And finally, it gets to the point where, as I mentioned, you just, you won't even be moved. It wouldn't matter if someone came back from the dead, they wouldn't listen. So there's a danger there that you might fall into that way of thinking and you see where it leads to. Again, it leads both to stubbornness where you'll never be moved, you get to where you think that way and you're not going to be moved. And it leads to Hades, is according to Jesus. So there's a warning there. So in summary, for 2015, money and us. You know, how do we think about money? The way I would explain this slide is to say that the real starting point there, that dividing line, is what we think about ourselves. And whether we're willing to identify with sinners. And again, I believe and I'm thankful that most of us here... Are, are willing to recognize that we have loved, we have not loved God the way we should. And we don't say things like, I've never murdered somebody. We recognize that God deserves and requires complete and full love. And we haven't given Him that. We've loved possessions more. We've loved family more. We've loved our lives more. That's the starting point though. So hopefully, we're, we're gonna work our way up. And you just wanna find yourself, right? Where you kind of think about possessions on this. And, and you want to be working your way up. Because some of us who believe that still may not really think day to day and, re- and recognize and live with the reality that these things are not ours. These things are not ours. I, I don't think I think that way very well. I mean just, I don't know where I'm at on the chart. I, I put this together at like 1.30 in the morning and I wasn't thinking very well, period. But, I, you know... I, 
My point is that all of us here now, hopefully most of us are above that line, hopefully. But the fact is we may not all think that way. And it's a challenge to us as we enter the new year and we think about what God has allowed us to possess to think about the fact that it's really not ours. That would be the next step is to, is to, is to ingrain that in you. And some of you may have that. There are a lot of folks that have lived longer than me and have learned these things. And, and, and I would think as you get older too, you begin to realize it becomes easier to see that these things are, you know, I even just think the opposite of my little kids who don't realize that they have nothing. Why are they fighting over that? Because they have nothing. They owe me a lot for being here. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Pent up. I have great kids, actually. Third, these possessions will be taken away from me. So, you know, go there. If you've already learned, if you already kind of have in your way of thinking that these are not my possessions, the next step would be to, to recognize I'm, they're gone. They're going to, you know, they're not going to stick around. And lastly, Jesus commands us, and where we're really trying to get to in 2015 and in our lives is to say, Boy, I'm not going to be able to keep these. I might as well use them before I lose them. Now, for those of us or some of us who might be, for whatever reason, have fallen into the bottom category, right? Again, it doesn't mean you're not saved. People fall into wrong ways of thinking. But Jesus gave the warning. So I'm just going to do what Jesus did and give the warning. And that is, you know, if you don't think of yourself in that category... If you think you've been faithful in your relationship to possessions, then work. Take some time to think and realize that you haven't loved God with all your heart and that you have loved your possessions at times. None of us, we don't always think that way. I'm not, some of us are faithful in our thinking. That's great. But all of us, at least at times in our life, have failed God in this. And so think that way. We might be farther down. We might, you might be thinking these possessions are mine or they are going to last, and you might be deceived into not realizing that. Or you might even be thinking, well, these possessions are really for me. I'm not going to share them with others. And again, the warning there is that you don't want to let yourself think that way for a long time. Because you can get to the point where you're not willing to listen, and that's a dangerous place to be. But again, my encouragement for us, for those of us here, for the most part, is to, to look at that top list and just try... To put yourself on there somewhere as your general way of thinking and just try to move move a notch up in your thoughts. Because that's what Jesus would have us to do as a result of this parable. So that's stewardship. And uh, let me pray for us and we're dismissed. Lord, thank you for coming. Thank you for preserving Jesus' words in the Gospels. Thank you for... Opening our eyes and helping us through your word to not think the stupid way that we do think. We come into the world thinking and it's uh, okay in kids. We need to train them and teach them. But Father, it's it's not good to persist in that thinking. And in this story, you had a group of folks who wrongly persisted in thinking that way. And I thank you because all of us would persist in thinking that way if it wasn't for you uh, giving the Bible, sending Jesus and telling us the right way to think. And teaching us. So we thank you for that. And we know as Ed said this morning. That it's the Holy Spirit. Who you sent when Jesus returned. That can help us think this way. We can't do it on our own. And so we thank you for that gift above all. And we pray that you would help us to think this way. Help us to 
to know how to live in the gray area, the things that require wisdom. How much should I save for my family and how much should I work and how much should I enjoy my possessions and who do I give to? Help us to understand all those things and as a church to honor you.